Welcome to Our Fighting Spirit, the podcast that celebrates and shares the stories of those who believe in persevering over giving up, standing again after falling, and continuing to live and build a life of their dreams, no matter the circumstances. Here's your host, Anthony Gigante. And welcome to Our Fighting Spirit. Today we have a very special guest and a very special family. Rico Lucas Carubia is a legend in the entertainment industry. He has been a sound designer for probably every show you may have seen, from Bruce Springsteen to Peter Townsend to The Who to Frank Sinatra, and basically every show on Broadway he's been involved in. We have his lovely wife today, Rebecca, and his son Lucas with us today as well. And we have a very compelling story to tell. Rico, how are you doing today, my friend? Doing great. Doing great. As you know, gigantor snowstorm in Atlantic City, which doesn't know how to handle it, but uh, it's it makes it quite beautiful here. You yeah, know? just white landscape and the ocean. It's gorgeous. Good day. Nice and nice and peaceful. I know. Rebecca, yes. how are we doing? You and Lucas, everybody well? Good. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Great. Rico, where we met. We immediately hit it off. We immediately became friends, like we're friends forever. And when we finally had a chance to talk and and find out about each other's lives, your story blew me away. And uh, if you can tell me prior to, like, what, what, how did you get started in the sound industry? How did that all happen for you? That was a summer job. Basically, uh, my life was not moving in this direction. I'd finished up uh, in film school, wor- working in media and uh, thinking about going that way. But then um, I ended up with a job just because jobs were kind of scarce. Working at Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C., using theater as a therapeutic uh, means for family therapy. And I was really enjoying that. And that was a great job. Um, then the pay wasn't great, but it was just something I really wanted to do. And I knew that if I had advanced my degree, I'd, I'd move further in it, you know? So I, um, all of a sudden, uh, I was, I was just talking to friends that I grew up with and, uh, other friends in the industry. And they said, Hey, did you hear Atlantic city's got casino gambling and they're giving out great jobs with great pay for that time period, what great pay was, it was ridiculous. But anyway, I was just so excited. So they said, have you ever done sound? I said, no, plenty of filmmaking, you know, video and video art and video recording. And they said, well, come on down and move to Atlantic City for the summer. And, and then you go back to college. You make a ton of money because we're opening up two new casinos and you work around the clock. And I go, fine. So I go do that. And I started to like it because it was just like, it was just nice. The community was just really wonderful. And the community of people doing production was just really uh, exciting. And I, and I liked that rather than the community of the intellectual, which was very separate and a little more, uh, you know, stuffy, of course. Mm-hmm. So I was having a good time, maybe too much of a good time. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I kept doing sound. And uh, before you know it, all of a sudden I'm sitting behind the console and Frank Sinatra's on stage. And that was like, wow, this is, this is, this is unbelievable. This is wonderful. And it was just, then I realized the art of mixing and the art of, an 80 piece orchestra on stage with a singer that was just so compelling. And then we'd have Broadway shows come through. I mean, Atlantic city was happening then. And uh, mm-hmm. so everybody was coming through every name them, everybody. So you then just by being on the crew, you got to be with everybody and everybody else that's on the road. 
and to see that back then the road was romantic. It was you could romanticize it. It was fun. It was great. People were together, families. So I stayed, and here I am, forty years later, still doing sound. Didn't go back to school, which I, I could say now I have regrets, but uh, I, I'm not complaining about the road life and the life of being a sound engineer and a creative sound engineer. Creative is the key. I mean, you are a creative man and your, your career kind of took a life of its own because from one opportunity led, led to another and then another and then another. And before you know it, you're working with the top people in the industry and, and they would call you to work with them. They would find you. You didn't have to even look for work. They would find you and ask you if you were available. No, that's why I, I never really uh, went back to school because after I go, okay, that's enough. Now let's go. And then I had a call from another production manager who came through and go, are you available? Wow. Yeah, okay. Oh, you mean we're going to Australia? Wow. You mean I'm going to get out of New York, New Jersey? Fantastic. So, I mean, that, that's the way it just kept growing. And I just it just evolved. And then all of a sudden, certain people like you know, Michael Crawford, you know, I'm working with him. And we're filling arenas with the Phantom of the Opera. And then all of a sudden, hey, I meet uh, certain people and I'm doing Tommy on Broadway. That was just unbelievable to work with Pete Townsend, to be one-on-one uh, -on -one with him. And we became buddies. And, and that's what I feel is old school with that type of sound. That's called star policy. I was, I was known to be good at star policy because I can navigate talking to the artist because you are his support. You're the, your sound. All the singers I work with, you are their support. And so many guys kind of get this wrong. They, they just mm -hmm. talk from technical mm -hmm. or they'll say, no, it, I didn't do that. No, no, you have to know the psychology of how to deal with your artist, you know, mm -hmm. and, and be there with them in the moment, you know, because they're up there and they're putting it all out in front of all those people. And, you know, and you just have to listen to them and, and see what you can do to make them happy doing sound. And some of them, it's, it's a, a non-starter. You're not going to win the battle if ever making them happy. But they'll keep you if they see you keep trying. You will stay mm -hmm. there. I've had so many you, artists that... Tell me that. <laughs> Have no, I know your career is incredible. It's incredible. Now you had um, working with Frank Sinatra. I think he, you had told me he called you the kid. Is that correct? Um, well, I'd have to say this. Honestly, I think he called everybody the kid. I'll okay, be honest okay. with you, everybody was the kid. <laughs> he never knew my name. But and, and with, with Frank, I was more, um, he came to Golden Nugget. I made it work for the first show he did there. And and I was not the mixer. I was the person that set everything up and was, was beholden to the mixer. I was kind of the system engineer, which is really important to every mixer. I always have someone who is much more technically uh, involved than I am, especially now with all the modern technology and sound to support mm -hmm. you. So, um, but I was actually advancing his shows to arenas and it, it just, I, I ended up getting to talk to him and just only, uh, only twice or three times was there really this incredible personal exchange? Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. And uh, it, was, it was really, really nice. nice. And, and then when I was mixing, once he was actually saying, uh, hey, to the band. I mean, and that was old school. Because now, you know, you have so much equipment in so many ways. needed then to basically overmix. But it was so nice to let the mix come from the stage. He mixed the show. Mm -hmm, you were just mm -hmm. there to implement what he was doing. <laughs> he, said, he says, hey, it's not the kid's job to get the dynamics right it's your job and i'm gonna let you know how to get it right or else you're gone that's mm -hmm. the way 
that's the way it went. And I like working with artists like that, you know? Yeah, fantastic, uh, it, amazing. It, it was totally inclusive and involved, you know? Amazing, amazing. All from the heart, all from the heart. All, all from the heart. That's how we work, right? All from the heart. Now, you've worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber. You've worked, as you mentioned, with The Who on Broadway, Peter Townsend. What are other, some of the other Broadway shows that you worked on? Broadway shows, well, one that I thought was really exciting was Bringing the Noise, Bringing the Funk mm. with Savion Glover and your not-so-ordinary tappers. That was amazing. That was a great piece for the time in, in terms of, you know, it made, it made a statement. And it made a, a statement about art, about, about Black artists. It was, uh, you know, and just that whole history of tapping. They mm. brought the Nicholas Brothers from the 30s. I mean, we had them mm. on stage. Gregory Hines would always come by, all these great artists. And 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 the other and the singers that would sing and and Savion would improvise tapping to their singing. It was such a great like mm-hmm. in the now show, you know. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was scripted, but it would change because all of a sudden they mm-hmm. go, "Hey, guess who's here tonight?" And it was just unbelievable. And then you know, Gregory would come up to me, he goes, "You got my shoes?" Because I'd have to. We had special mics on the shoes, so I'd have his shoes. But he always looked at the stage. I have to say, and go, that guy, man, the hand of God is on that guy, uh, Savion mm-hmm. Glover. It was brilliant. And, very talented um, man. Yeah, very talented, very talented. man. Great show. Um, was that, the show was ahead of its time. I did. Yes, I did. It was ahead of its time. It was, it was amazing. Now, your, your touring and your Broadway work led you to meet Rebecca. Is, am I, am yes. I in the right? Okay. So how, yes. when did you guys meet? How long ago did you guys meet? Well, we met in an amazing Technicolor Dreamcoats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was uh, put on this, uh, this touring show, and the star of that, Joseph, was Donny Osmond in mm-hmm. 1995. Um, and um, it was, we first played Chicago and I know she was on the crew and it was just like, hi, goodbye. But then all of a sudden we ended up in Detroit. It was like, that was a show that lived in cities. We lived, we lived mm-hmm. in Chicago for quite a period of time. The show lived in Toronto, mm-hmm. Minneapolis where Rebecca joined it. She was so excited to join a Broadway show after she graduated college. Mm-hmm. And, and then I went to Chicago, Detroit, in Detroit, you know, we all lived in, in the same apartment complex and she needed a ride to work. We had a car. So uh, my uh, colleague and I, who was my associate on the show, we drove her to work and we just all became good friends and, mm-hmm. and, and things just happened. Things just and happened. I love it. I love it. So, Rebecca, when you first uh, met the uh, young Rico, mm-hmm. uh, what did you think? What happened? Was it love at first sight? <laughs> was it uh, I got to get away from this guy or, or I what did you feel? I was- I was with a friend of mine who I did the show before Luke, before Rico did and uh, in Minneapolis. And so Mm -hmm. I knew the crew from Toronto, which is where the show originated. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, my friend Simon introduced us in the um, orchestra pit of the Masonic temple in Detroit. And he said, this is Rico. He's crazy. Stay away from him. (laughs) And maybe that's what. That's what sparked my like interest. I don't know, like crazy people, you know, you know. <laughs> crazy equals fun. Uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So you met in Minneapolis and you were on tour with uh, the Donny Osmond show, uh, uh, Joseph, and you went from city to city and you guys ended up in Boston. It was one of the stops along the, along the tour, correct? Right. Yeah. Met in Detroit, actually. And then, and yeah. Oh, in Detroit. And then Boston, we were in Detroit for maybe four or five months, something like that. And then we went to Boston and we were in Boston for almost a year. And then Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. What happened in Boston? <laughs> what happened in Boston? Yes. No Rico. What, what happened in Boston? <laughs> well, what attracted me to her, besides we're giving a ride and everything, is she told me this crazy dream. So I should make this. Okay. <laughs> no, it was no, 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 nothing weird, nothing weird like that, but out for it's Rebecca and it's Rebecca's artistic mind. Oh boy. I just had this dream last night and I don't, it was, I was in the bedroom. I was in my bedroom and it was just fire all around me and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't breathe and everything smoke was choking me and the fire was getting closer and closer. And I go, Oh my God, what happened? I unplugged it. <laughs> like, wow. She's out. She's Rico's type of girl. <laughs> I gotta be honest. That was it. I go, she's cool. I told everybody. That's, that's Everyone beautiful. Goes, well, that's Rebecca. <laughs> that's beautiful. That's a great story. I so you're on know. you're on tour and you end up in Boston and you're in Boston for a number of nights. And and one night you felt a little uncomfortable and you felt like you needed to go to the hospital. Is that uh am I explaining that correctly? Is that yeah. Well, for a while there, it was just like it was just like an ouch in the chest, and then uh mm -hmm. running up mm -hmm. the subway stairs to get to the show because I was always like made it mm -hmm. and then sitting behind the console and, you know, first of all, calming down. And then an hour later going, <gasps> I go, oh, this is not life. This is, this is not right. I've mm -hmm. done a lot of things to my body, you know, uh, <laughs> and uh, this is not, this is not meant to be. So, and I told Rebecca and uh, everybody else, and they said, maybe you should go across the street after the show. And then Mass General was there. So I went mm -hmm. across, went to the emergency room. They did an x-ray, two young uh, up and coming doctors. Just say, you know something, it looks like the x-ray looks fine. Maybe, you know, you said you just finished loading. You guys just opened. You pulled a muscle. And I go, you know, this doesn't feel like a pulled muscle. Go, that, well, that's our prognosis. Went home. And then we're all, you know, theater community is very tight. So we have been hearing about the newest, greatest, most wonderful show was the show Rent. Mm -hmm. by jo uh, written by Jonathan Larson. And all my friends mm -hmm. are designers on it. And um, talking to them about the great experience of it. But what had happened three weeks before this episode with me was that the writer before opening night had died from a heart aneurysm, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. he was sipping tea and just fell over and just went, you know, just mm -hmm. peacefully went. It was just like wild. And I was started reading articles about it. And they actually said that he went to a couple of places and one certain hospital said, you pulled a muscle. You, you definitely pulled a shoulder muscle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he believed them. But little did he know that um, what was going on in my body happened to him. And God forbid, uh, if I didn't know that, I wouldn't have done further investigation. I would mm -hmm. have just listened to them. But when he said he pulled a muscle, because this was so unnatural. And for mm -hmm. me to just be huffing and puffing while I'm just at rest and just hanging out and watching uh, TV or just sitting down, which is crazy. So I flew to my best friend from high school, who was a cardiologist in Florida. And he looked at the x-ray and dropped it and goes, what we, we got to put you on under a, a heart scan did the heart scan and he goes you have an aneurysm you, you i got to find you a surgeon and i got to find you a surgeon now you need your operation now i'm going how did this go from living life so wonderfully and and you know mm -hmm. going through the trials and tribulations but this is like life or death within a day and i made the flight to to see him and he uh said you have a heart aneurysm it's going to burst and he showed me the x-ray that they looked at and he said I can't believe they missed this. Look at how cloudy this is. That's your aorta root actually expanding the actual mm. Uh, mm. blood flow from the heart, uh, from the heart, and connected to the aortic valve, which he said was totally 
uh, destroyed needs to be replaced. So it was pretty wild that I needed these extra parts immediately. Mm-hmm. So sure. um, I, I said, you know, this is cool. And it's nice that, you know, and I know you're a great doctor in Disney World's down here, but Boston tends to have the best doctors. I, I just like Boston where I was. So he actually called Harvard Heart and got me an appointment with Dr. Lawrence Cohn, the, the god of heart surgery. So I flew mm-hmm. back in the next flight and I went to go see him. And when I went to see him, it was on a Friday and he looks at the film, he comes back in his big wooden stoic office at Harvard. And he goes, Lucas, um, what are you doing Monday? I go, I, I don't know what we do. He goes, you need, you need to do this immediately. Like he was very so calm. I was going, can we do it tomorrow? I guess we don't do it on Saturday. And I, I think he can go through the weekend. Okay. So it was just quite, quite amazing that we waited, went through the weekend. We, I hate to say this, but Donnie Osmond threw after the Sunday show, a big, beautiful last supper in little Italy for me. I mean, the, before the operation, last supper, before the operation, I didn't think I was going anywhere. I just, I was just, I had no idea it happened so quickly. So it was just really comforting. And, and then the operation happened. And that was, that was open heart operation number one. And I don't know how people can mentally, I don't, I don't know. I, I couldn't prepare for that. Yeah, that's a that's a big deal. Well, we obviously it's a big deal. Now, Rebecca, you were by his side, but Lucas, mm. were you you were on the West Coast at the time, or were you on the East Coast when, when no, Dad I was going through this? I was born and raised in New Jersey, so I was really okay. young. I was I, I don't even remember, you know, the when he got his first um, surgery. However, I do know from my mom actually told me that the whole night of his operation, I was actually crying, which is kind of interesting. There's kind of like a tethered connection. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even when I was that young, which was, you know, um, really interesting to learn, you know, kind of later in life. But yeah, I was I was really young at the time. Mm, that's that is very interesting that you did cry all night. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So we're in the hospital and um, we're ready to go into surgery. And I think you had said it's a Monday when you're going into surgery. And uh, so you're you kiss kiss Rebecca and say, I'll see you in a little while. <laughs> and uh, you go into surgery and. Tell us the next steps. What happened then? Well, the greatest thing is that as possibly eccentric we all are in our own little ways, Dr. Lawrence Cohn, they actually started a reality show about heart doctors. I, I heard later on, like maybe 2010, mm-hmm. and he was the star. He was quite eccentric, but this guy had saved lives like you wouldn't believe. Jumping mm-hmm. on gurneys of, of kids that got shot in drive-bys and cutting them open while they're being pushed. The, the ambulance driver was actually telling me that took said that he had to put on goggles because everybody watch out, opened her up, saved her life. And this mm-hmm. guy was the legend of heart mm-hmm. surgery. And I was just mm-hmm. so happy to be with him. But anyway, comes in, I wake up from it. I didn't even know what position I was in. He goes, write down any communication because you had, I had like, who knows how many tubes down my throat. I just had no, I was so disoriented. And all of a sudden everything started beeping. And I kind of opened my eyes and I see this figure throwing chairs against the wall, hitting everything. And he just goes, Damn it. I lost your heartbeat. I lost your heartbeat. I'll get it back. And he is in front of all my students, you know, because it was one of those, you know, he, did, he actually did it in the arena, the surgery. arena. Sure, sure, of all sure. So he basically was really upset that he lost my heartbeat. And he says, I'll get it back. We'll make it right. We'll get it fixed. And then what happened was I spent, we spent another week. I was healing really well. Spent a week in the hospital. And usually we just get out and he goes, I'm going to keep you another week. Let's see if it heals. Let's see if there's anything we can do uh, to bring it back. Didn't, so then they implanted the pacemaker. So um, that, that bummed me out. And all of a sudden now I'm not on my energy, my mm-hmm. spirit of, to mm-hmm. me, the, the whole beautiful heartbeat. One chamber wasn't beating. So um, 
So we did. And he says, guess what? I bet you in four or five months, it's going to come back. And I said, oh, well, okay, if you say so. Basically what happened really quickly is we were doing the show in Chicago. We actually were still doing Joseph, went back to Detroit, then went back to Chicago and we're sitting there and I'm mixing the show. And uh, it just felt like uh, I had 18,000 cups of coffee and, mm-hmm. and whatever else. And sitting behind the board and I called backstage, I go, you got to get an ambulance here. My heart is beating out of my chest. So they actually took me to Chicago Presbyterian and um, University Hospital. And uh, they called him up and then they had to actually, it's unbelievable. And I, I um, to be awake and have the, the paddling happen. They had to paddle me every five minutes to paddle it back into a, a rhythm because it was going haywire. But the pacemaker was in there. So in their minds, they thought I was pacemaker dependent. What mm-hmm. happened was one of them had the bright idea to turn off the pacemaker. And then they just looked at me and I literally had gigantic boils on my chest mm-hmm. and on my back. They put a pad here and a pad on your back. And I mean, it hurt so bad. And they go, your heartbeat came back. And I just mm-hmm. started crying. And I called Boston. I go, King, I used to call it King Kong, King Cone, King Cone, the King Cone of everybody. My heartbeat came back. I told you. But that literally was four to five months afterwards. Genius. Amazing. So, Amazing. So basically, it's predicated on that memory that, oh, when I need the next valve, which, you know, they go bad because now I had a pig's valve and mm. that I would be able to go back and I'd have the master do it, you know. But um, in 2016, well, the master called me in two. I was doing a, a, doing a show in L.A. and uh, about the doors. It was great. And then get a phone call from him. And he goes, uh, he goes, guess what? You better get up here. He goes, we waited too long for this. He goes, but uh, here's another bad thing. I just retired. I go, oh, no, no way. You did not retire. Doc, please unretire. For, I'll come back now. He says, no, no, just come back in the next few months. I promise you, you'll be taken care of well. This is 2016. Things change. And he says, and I'll be in the room. So I uh, went back up in January of that year. And January 3rd was uh, D-Day. My wife and I went up there. We have great pictures of us running around the night before, running around Boston with all the great places we hung. We just had a great night out before I had to go in and spend the whole day detoxing from the alcohol and getting ready for the operation. Sure, and, sure, uh, sure. And, uh, you know, being able to pick up a complete glass of wine with all my fingers and mm-hmm. do a lot of things, run my fingers through her hair, do right. a lot of things. Yeah, but, okay, uh, so we're, else- we're, Rebecca, so you were with the, you were on, obviously on this journey side by side and mm. you're in Boston, you're ready to get this major operation the next day. And you had a little celebration before that. And you didn't feel, you felt very good about everything I would imagine. Or do you have any doubts about what was going on? Did you have any, of course, the nervousness of surgery, of course, but you felt pretty good, I would imagine, about everything the direction was going, right? Yeah, I, I felt pretty good about it. We were supposed to be, you know, done in a couple of days and back at home, back at work mm. in like four or five days. Yeah. Back in New York. Because mm. that's or back in North New Jersey where we live. Mm-hmm. And I was working at NBC at the time. So I was just taking off a couple of days from work. We were supposed to be back. Yeah. Mm. It ends up that you were in the hospital much longer than expected. And in fact, Rico, you actually were in a, is it correct to say you were in a coma or you were just, tell, you tell me how long were you unconscious? I guess is the only word I can think of. A lovely goddess has to tell you that. I mean, it wasn't okay. really coma, though. It was what do they call it? 
Rebecca, I'm sorry. I would say you were in like a drug-induced coma for maybe, mm. I would say at least a week. And then, I mean, he still was delirious for maybe two, two and a half weeks, really. Honestly, <laughs> un, un, like not, not himself for a while, like most of the month of January, he was not like himself, you know. So from a three day stay in the hospital, which it was supposed to be, you're actually there almost three weeks now, correct? Right. Yeah, mm. definitely. Three and while you were in three in weeks. Last day. Yeah. Yeah. And we know the date well because it's coming up in memories on the Facebook every day. And she kept a log and just wrote yeah. to all my friends, you know, and, and not going because I traveled so much globally. Everybody was writing and it was it was just I had no idea, but she was keeping everybody up to date. And uh, that was quite wonderful. But mm -hmm. um, just on January 24th from January 3rd, January 24th was because I've been reading through things. It's just so hard today. Just I just mm -hmm. so hard to read through the things and what went down. January 24th was really D-Day. It was really uh, a catastrophic day. Mm -hmm. You want to explain, honey? So your surgery was January 3rd. Yeah. And, and of course, a couple of days after that, I learned that his doctor that he was just talking about, Lawrence Cohen, had crazy, like, um, like, like a heart attack himself and passed away unexpectedly. And uh, the nurses, I, I was, I told them all, like, when he wakes up, do not tell him that that doctor passed away because he'll get really upset. Because that was like, you know, why we were there. Yeah, they were, they were trying to get him off of uh, blood pressure medicine, and his blood pressure was messed up. He was in toxic shock from the surgery because they cut into his arteries that they shouldn't have cut into. All these things went wrong. His surgery was three times longer than it should have been. It, it was, I, I was in the waiting room on January 3rd. He was like the first surgery in the morning. Like we were, we had to get there at like 6 a.m. And I swear I was in the um, waiting room at the hospital way after the waiting room actually closed. They let me still sit in there. So like, I didn't learn what was going on with him from like 6 a.m. to probably nine at night, maybe even later. I think I, I probably got upstairs to his room at like 10 at night. So that's a lot of time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was just, you know, like I said, uh, in a coma, drug induced state for at least a week, I would say. And then, you know, they did slowly get him out of it, but he was still very delirious and mm -hmm. very sick. Like his kidneys weren't working. Mm -hmm. His fingers were dusky. You know, he was on all this blood pressure medicine because his blood pressure was just like up and down and just like mm -hmm. all over the place. Crazy. Um, yeah. And, uh, but, but, I mean, he, he was still moving along, <laughs> mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. you know, there was still hope. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And it sounds like there were so many mishaps along the way. And then there the were biggest... a lot of things going on. There were so many things going on and it, it was, it was just, it was crazy. Yeah. Mm. And, and I didn't really, I kept people updated on Facebook. I would put out like an update every day. 
like Lucas was saying, all of that, because it's January right now, all of those memories are coming back up on Facebook. Like, hey, remember you said this? Mm -hmm. back then? And mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah I remember. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like all the memories coming back, like how sick he was and and like he was he had really good days and then like the next day it would be a disaster mm -hmm. and then he would have a good day and then the next day would be like awful yeah so what a ride what a what yeah. a ride and what trauma his body was going through and the stress you were going through as well oh, it's, it's yeah, pretty pretty incredible pretty amazing is right so we're at july january 24th and then another another big mishap occurs where you take a real turn for the worst and walk us walk us through that, Rebecca, if you can. I don't mm. I don't want to bring these memories back, but it's mm. it's it's important. Yeah, we were talking about it earlier today because Tom Brady retired today, and mm -hmm. one of my big memories from that day was that the nurses that were on staff um, were watching the Patriots game, and were totally focused on that and not focused on Lucas. Mm -hmm. From my mm -hmm. memory. Uh, Lucas was there, young Lucas was there um, <laughs> earlier in the day. And if you remember, he like Rico was sweating and just he had a fever and he, he was very like agitated that whole day. And there was I, I could tell there was something wrong, you know, and uh, so I would like if I saw anything wrong with him or anything new, like if his blood pressure was being weird or anything, I would go and tell somebody so they could come in and like check him, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just remember these nurses being infatuated with the Patriots game and not really paying attention to, to him. Mm -hmm. And then- Or to anybody coding. Right. And then mm -hmm. Lucas mm -hmm. left because he had to get back to school, I think, or wherever he was going. Yeah. And so I was there alone with Rico. And um, still being aware that he's not well, like there's something going on, like something's happening. Then all of a sudden, like his eyes roll back and I didn't know what was going on. It, it was like the scariest moment of my life. I ran and got like the nurse and it was like cold blue. You know, they were all like on him and they ushered me out into the hallway and uh, after like a half hour, I'd say they revived him. Um, he had like a, a cardiac arrest. Um, they had to give him, they, they figured out from his blood count. What was your blood count? count That he was missing at least eight yeah. pints of blood. Like yeah, eight pints. Yeah. And I don't know. I was at 3.7. 3.7. Which is basically not having a drop of blood in your body for your heart to beat. Right. So they had him on all this blood pressure medicine and they didn't have his, the volume of his blood in his body <laughs> at the correct level to deal with like the heart medicine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in my mind, it's like this. So he mm -hmm. had a heart, a cardiac arrest and they were like, oh, he must be bleeding out somewhere in his body, like his brain or his, you know, in his abdomen or something. So we have to give him eight pints of blood and then take him for a CAT scan to mm. find out what's going on. He might not survive it. So, oh my you know, uh, we're going to take him as soon as 
the last bag of blood like goes in. We're going to take him down to CAT scan, but we're just warning you. He, he might not survive the trip down there to the CAT scan. And I'm like, okay. like, how do you deal? Like, I don't know. Right. Like, how do you right. deal with that? Right. And they're, they're like, you can go in and like stay with him right now while the next, while the last bag of blood like goes into his body. So I'm sitting there and the, I remember the tube, the clear tube of blood and, and like the red blood, like going so slow, like into his body. And I'm just mm-hmm. thinking, please hurry up. Like, please mm-hmm. go faster so he can mm-hmm. get down there so they can figure out what's wrong. Mm-hmm. So then they took him down and I was up in the room alone and I tried to just like, I'm like, please, I just want to go to sleep. Like, just like, let me go to sleep and let me wake up and let, let, let everything be okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I woke up and he was back and they came into me and they said, we didn't find any bleed at all in his body. So we're baffled at like, what the heck happened? We have no idea why he had such a little amount of blood in his body. And one thought that came to my mind instantly was, I know why he has no blood in his body because they have him hooked up to this dialysis machine that none of the nurses except for one knew how to really run. Mm-hmm. And this dialysis machine would have a cartridge that had a, a filter and like all these tubes and his blood was clotting for some reason and the cartridge would get clotted. So once that got clotted, it wouldn't work. And they would have to take the cartridge out and throw it away and put a new cartridge in. Mm -hmm. And I asked the nurses maybe a week before this all happened, how much blood is in those cartridges when you throw the blood away? Cause I, I, I don't know how blood works in the body. I I don't know if it regenerates like, Mm -hmm. or anything. So I would ask questions all the time. I'm like, how does that work? Because like, you're throwing away a lot of his blood every time you throw those cartridges away right Mm -hmm. and the nurse was like oh no it's just like 200 milliliters of blood in there or something whatever and i'm like but that adds up when you throw away like five of the cartridges Mm -hmm. (laughs) in like a couple days time right Mm -hmm. so that's the first thing that came to my mind and the next day i was like so one of the doctors was walking down the hallway with me and i said so like what do you think happened like he was missing all this blood, but where did all the blood go? Or or like, what, what is the equivalency of all the blood he was missing? And the doctor told me that the amount of blood in his body, it it was like, he was bleeding out. Like somebody stabbed him and he was Mm -hmm. on the floor and that's how much blood he had in his body. Like that's how little blood he had. And I was just, how, how does that happen? And the doctor was like, we, we don't know. Like it's a mystery. And I was like, yeah, it was the, it was the dialysis machine. <laughs> I know it was. But in the report, it was. it was like someone stabbed him and he bled out. And when I became yeah. conscious, I kept thinking about that. The next hospital I went to, I just have to say, I was paranoid watching people with packages walking towards my room going, let me get the nurse. Who's this person? Because I didn't know what the heck happened in the first hospital <laughs> to wake up to this and no feet. Yeah. I mean, so, so, okay. So, so you yeah. went to, you went to the neck, you went to another hospital after that, correct? And, and, and that's where another mishap occurred, uh, where you actually were. No, a, I didn't, no, let, let Rebecca should, I'm sorry. I, I jumped in. 
No, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. Okay. Well, I had mentioned that your your fingers were dusky Mm. previously to the cardiac arrest, which is due to the the um, blood pressure medicine that he was on because his blood pressure was so crazy the whole time he was in Boston until after they gave him the correct amount of blood in his body mm-hmm, <laughs> after the mm-hmm. cardiac arrest. But unfortunately, after he had the cardiac arrest, you know, to keep him alive, they had to give him all this heart heart medicine to keep his blood pressure up. And that really killed his fingers and his toes. And um, that's so yeah, because yeah. before this incident, I still had like, honey, I, I still had my feet were fine. Right, was, yeah. they weren't black were and dead. Fine, yeah. And my hands. Yeah. I mean, I have I the, I was taking pictures of everything, so I have pictures of, you know, before that cardiac arrest and after, and it was definitely the cardiac arrest that really kind of cemented the fact that his fingers were not going to make it. <laughs> and I mean, we didn't know anything like I had never heard of such a thing like before, yeah. before it, this, like I didn't know that like, you could have surgery and lose your fingers and your toes. Like I, I had no idea. Yeah. And it's so, crazy. So, so a lot of the information we found from the, the report too, like when we were in it, um, when it was happening, there was not really a lot of communication about what was going on. And mm-hmm. so it was, we had to do our homework with the report after the fact, which I'm sure we'll kind of get into a little bit more later to understand Mm -hmm. what exactly was happening. And, you know, he was on, you know, the vasopressors and the blood pressure medicine to, you know, kind of get the blood to his vitals because he was Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. shock. And so that was making his fingers kind of dusky, but they were weaning him off up until Mm -hmm. that point. So, and, you know, that was actually reflected in the report. And again, you know, this wasn't really known that much to us, um, but if, wasn't until the cardiac arrest where they had to put him back on the pressers. And so, mm-hmm. you know, our biggest question was why did he go into cardiac arrest? And it's obvious mm-hmm. that that led to him having to be put back on this medication that's obviously killing his fingers and toes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were trying to figure out, you know, what was happening and we just couldn't get answers. And just so, so we normal way for- again. Now, walk me through this quickly. So after after the cardiac arrest, he obviously had a they had to revive him and take him into another place. Now, Rebecca, you you uh, watched them take him away. And when they decided they had to amputate his fingers and his toes, did they consult with you first or they just did? Well, they- actually, he didn't like the amputations didn't take place for for months after that. Oh, okay. Which is surprising, okay. I'm sure, to many people. <laughs> yeah, surprising um, to me for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, like, I mean, when was it? September that you had your, like, oh, we're talking yeah, no, the hands, June. hands. Well, we will we'll show pictures. Hands yeah. in June, and yeah. feet not until December because it doesn't just take away. So people know vasopressor sucks oxygen out of your extremities. They make it. They make it um, a decision. Does he want to be alive and not be brain dead? So, okay, we use vasopressor, sucks the oxygen out of your extremities. I mean, we know that for a while, they thought I was really going to lose my right leg, all right, completely. And this happens, this has been happening during COVID when people's hearts fall off the charts. So they, they waited, we waited and we waited, and I'm staring at dead, dead feet uh, until December when they thought there was good enough skin to save 
the same enough. And uh, we'll go into that story later about waking up from that operation. No, no, it mm-hmm. took a long time. It yeah. took a long time. And were you, were you hospitalized all this time or you were home? Hospitalized until May in okay. different. We wanted to get out. We no, got out of there. Hospitalized. You were in the rehab. Yeah. Okay. But in there and then and also you pen for about two and a half months. And then they downgraded me because I really when I left Harvard, when I was just I said, we got to get out of here because I just feel like they wanted to just tug me under the, uh, the rug and then forget about me. We actually went to University of Pennsylvania for another month and a half, which I, I, I found out recently that for the first month there, I was, I was uh, still, you know, on the uh, razor's edge of life. You know, I just and I thought I was doing much better because I was conscious and everything was 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 OK, but I wasn't wasn't really. But then all of a sudden things just got better and they were able to downgrade me and then they moved me into a rehab. And then I got a, home. And a good that, reason why you got better was that your kidneys came back. Mm-hmm. Like his kidneys hadn't been working for almost a month. Mm-hmm. And once he got those eight, like after the cardiac arrest, after he got all that blood back in his body, it seemed like a couple of days after that, his kidneys came back miraculously. Mm-hmm. And once his kidneys came back, like he just started to get better, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. I think that just cleansed everything. Right. Out. So, Body start um, to work normally again. Yeah. Um, and um, so, and then we took an ambulance all the way from Boston to Philly, like he was saying. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to go to that Philly. That was a fun ambulance. So, Phil said Philly's a good city to be sick in. And mm-hmm. it was. They they really, they really worked passionately for saving. When we started crying, when he says, they basically the the, the amputee doctors, the plastic surgeon, who said, What the hell were you doing up there? What what did you do? What did they do to you? What did you let them do this to you? I go, I was, I was in another planet. I had no idea what they were doing to me. He says, well, just know this. I can't promise you not being amputated from uh, right below the knee. What? What? And we just started crying. And then he turned around. We love this doctor. I, I still go see him and we've gone out to dinner. He just says, I'll do my best to save everything. Don't worry. And, but he said, it was just time. We just had to wait and see if good cells grew back in my feet to give me mm-hmm. more feet for him to make my little beanie bag alien feet that he's made for me God mm-hmm, bless him, mm-hmm. that I can walk and jog on. Amazing. Amazing. So, so, uh, uh excuse me, but fo- walk me through this. So at this point, you still had use of your fingers and, and limited use of your feet, a limited use of both. And they were trying to try to save everything for you. Is that, am I correct there? Not say they couldn't save everything. So what happened was, okay. Have to show you pictures. Like, this is what they could say. This was in a fist. That's why I only have this left. Uh-huh. This was in a fist. This, we were just praying for more and more good skin. Because you basically, and I'm lefty. And uh, that's mm-hmm. pressure uh, acts differently on your dominant side. So, but the thumb to forfeit, that, that, that is really the crux of everything. You know, I'm learning now, you know, the, those basic human being needs of using fingers. You need those two more than anything, though. Mm-hmm. Because that's, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're grabbing things. You know, it's opposing fingers, opposing forces. Your thumb grabs against other fingers to do things. Turn knobs, take off bottle caps, do all that necessary to do buttons. That's what you do. But um, mm-hmm. so he was just, we were just waiting to see how much good skin would, would come back. Um, not much good skin did come back. But what really was, the, I want to just say this, I didn't say it before. The painful part of this was that, and this is why I got happy and stronger, is because they left me like that. They kept coming in. 
and apologizing for what happened and saying, we're sorry that you don't have the use of your fingers anymore. Because basically with them dead, uh, Anthony, it was the worst thing in the world because now I can do so much. But when, when all the dead tissue was there, they mm-hmm. were just frozen in space. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do anything. And when I tried to eat, they used this Velcro thing and tried to put this plastic fork and I'm eating and it's just falling here. It was not going in my mouth. I couldn't do anything. And I just thought, thought that that was the rest of my life. I had no idea what it was going to be like after the amputations. I had no idea that I was going to be able to drive. I was going to be able, but I had to teach myself that. And all amputees mm-hmm. do, I had no idea. So we're talking about for at least seven months in my mind, every day, 24 hours, no sleep, just going, what did they do to my life? Because I had mm-hmm. no idea what I was going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. I thought I was not going to be able to do anything. I thought that was it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's the normal reaction. I, I, I don't know how, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine, but I agree with you. That's a normal reaction. And it's astonishing to me how this all went, went down. And, and so you're, you're, you're basically, you're, you're a genius in the entertainment world, a sound engineer, a sound designer, and you need use your fingers to do this and you can't have your livelihood anymore, at least in the, at least in the beginning which uh, is also something that hits your head and hits you mentally and, and, and messes you up a little bit. I, I, I mean, your life, I, 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 I can't believe it. You know, I can't believe what happened here. I, I, I st- you know, I, since we met, uh, Rico, I, I, I think about you every day. And uh, when, I do the, uh, the, when I do the little things in life that I, uh, that I do with taking for granted, I think of you that these things are major chores for you. And that's also part of this whole, this whole thing, you know, and, and man, I, I, I love you. And uh, I, I can't imagine. So I'm with you there. I, I wish I can help in some way, but yeah, now just, we're, sure, sure. No, please. no, I wish I could, like we talked, I'd like to, like, I just took a shower before all this and the Zen ritual of, of taking a shower, I have to think about everything, have mm-hmm. to yes. put something down. I put a little towel down in the tub because these little feet, I've had them slip. And can you imagine if I broke things? Uh, maybe I'd mm-hmm. never have used them mm-hmm. again. The little towel down. Everything has to be in the right spot so I can do what I can do. I can shower and have mm-hmm. special tools to shower. And mm-hmm. I'm not the mm-hmm. only one. I, I just I I love the amputee community because it's just so powerful. And everybody that has to that, that that's in this position that just has the willpower to go on with life and and do things. At you mm-hmm. you of Penn, we heard about amputees doing like amazing things that I, I can't do what they do, what they do, the, the ones that lose their leg uh, above the knee, they do amazing things. Well, you see them in the Olympics, they, they mm-hmm, run, mm-hmm. they run and win. It's just quite amazing what it's they do. Amazing. The spirit is amazing. Now, Lucas, you, 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 uh, as you got older, you, you follow this journey, you were in this journey and you really got involved with Rebecca in trying to make things right to a degree. And can you tell us where you are now? I know you have detailed information. Rebecca kept an amazing journal, detailed journal. You actually are in the medical, you're actually pursuing your PhD and in, in directly into the medical field uh, as well. And tell us where you are now with this and tell us what the next steps are. Yeah. So I'm doing my PhD in the biomedical sciences. I do traumatic brain injury research actually. Um, and so, you know, um, the one thing that, you know, kind of getting that type of degree does is it makes you pretty good at reading stuff and kind of understanding what might, you know, um, what might not make sense and trying to find mm-hmm. gaps 
kind of in things that others write, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, after all this had happened, um, you know, my, my father had, you know, looked into, you know, seeking legal counsel to try to understand, you know, what had gone wrong and, and how we could be helped um, in, in those ways. And they sat on it for about two and a half years and did nothing. And so my dad called me one day. I remember I was at Starbucks and he called me and he was like, they just told me that there's nothing they could do. And we just kind of sat there and we're like, are you kidding me? It's been two and a half years and you only have three years before, you know, pretty much you, you have to, you know, uh, what is it? You kind of submit your, um, you know, I guess admission to, to sue or else mm-hmm. that's it. Mm-hmm. And so it, yeah. we kind of sat there and I was like, you know what, send me the, um, you know, the report from the hospital. It's what, like 12 or 14,000 pages of just craziness because it's not really that organized and all this stuff. I was like, send it to me. Let's go through it. Let's read it ourselves and see what went on. Let's read their notes. Let's read everything that went through it. And then, you know, my dad has, uh, friends that are physicians, as do I. There are a lot of physicians in my field that um, also pursue research and, you know, to try to understand things. And so we spent months, you know, going through the, uh, you know, all the notes and all the records ourselves. And we were able to find those gaps ourselves and then, mm-hmm. um, you know, seek other legal counsel to kind of put this sort of through and understand really what's going on. So, you know, when my dad had mentioned, you know, that his blood level is 3.7 grams per deciliter, his hemoglobin level was that, or, you know, Rebecca's mentioning that, you know, his H&H was kept really low. That was from us going through the records years yeah. after the fact, when the legal counsel who was supposed to be doing this didn't. And that was us educating ourselves on mm-hmm. what had gone on. So that way mm-hmm. we could actually understand if, um, you know, if things went wrong, or if this was kind of, normal procedure and we were just shit mm-hmm. out of luck. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, you know, when we went through it, we had actually found that throughout the course, uh, especially leading up to before he went into cardiac arrest the first time, they had kept his blood level very low. They had kept it, you know, I don't think we mentioned it before, but his hemoglobin it was at around seven grams per deciliter, which we mm-hmm. had, um, you know, heard from, you know, um, experts that that is actually pretty low. And then on the day that he went into cardiac arrest, it did dip to 3.7. And what's crazy is that we cross-referenced, as Rebecca had mentioned before, that, that before that hemodialysis machine, and we could actually see when the machine went down. That's in the records. They have like you know, wow. thousands of pages of when it just stops working. And in the hours leading up to that, um, it went down twice within two hours leading up to it. Um, and so we cross-referenced that we cross-referenced how, uh, you know, all the drugs that he was on, how they were weaning him off and how he had to be put back on the vasopressors right after. And we also, mm-hmm. um, were able to cross-reference when his fingers and toes actually went from being musky to having, they call it necrosis, which is the actual or gangrene, which is when that tissue actually dies. None of the mm-hmm. tissue was dead until after the cardiac arrest. And so, you know, i you know, and not just me, but we all really put in the time um, to go through, you know, all of the, uh, all of the records to really understand what was happening and where we think the care could have been better and where mm-hmm. we think that there could have been mistakes made. And it was just, 
it was crazy to us that, you know, one, you can't really depend on legal counsel all the time to do this mm-hmm. type of work. You have to do it yourself and bring it to them so that they can build a case. Mm-hmm. And two, there was no communication from the doctors about oh, any of this throughout the mm-hmm. time of his stay and afterwards. We didn't even know that they nicked the pulmonary artery until after we had to read that in the, in the report. Are you they kidding? They never me? told me that. They just said that he was, uh, you know, there were complications and he had to be, mm-hmm. you know, kind of kept, you know, because when they do the surgery, you're, you're, you're kept really cold. You're essentially mm-hmm. dead. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Heart surgery. They didn't say why we didn't find out why until after. And so, you know, one thing, um, not to change it too far, but, you know, we actually did go and we had a meeting with, um, you know, the surgeon uh, years later, and they invited us to, you know, to the hospital to um, kind of extend what we thought they were extending an arm to us. They were like, hey, you know, let's talk about what happened and let's see how we could help. And so, you know, we went to Boston and we sat in a room with the administrator, um, some other person who was supposed to be kind of like their prosthetics guy and the, uh, you know, the surgeon who had done my father's surgery and they sat us down and the surgeon kind of started off the meeting and pretty much said, you know, what had happened was you had come in for surgery. There were some complications and, you know, unfortunately you know, the outcome was suboptimal, but you know, you are alive. And that was pretty much it. He never went over the complications from the surgery itself. He never went over the complications of the care when he went into cardiac arrest or any of the hurdles that he was going through throughout his stay at all. It was as if he just didn't even remember or think to actually go through the documents. And that was really hard for us because we're all sitting mm-hmm. there and we're like, we're thinking two things. One, I can't believe this person just made it seem like, you know, everything was good that mm-hmm. happened, that it was mm-hmm. almost like a success. And two, the fact that he had sat us down and went through his care kind of sequentially without mentioning any of the missteps that happened pretty much told us that this must be what he says to other people who haven't actually gone through the medical records. Mm-hmm. So because mm-hmm. we went through the records, we, we questioned him. We you said, knew the truth. You, you knew the truth. Yeah. 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 And you tell us about the Nick and the pulmonary, because now we know that that happened. He didn't even, mm-hmm. he was like, whoa, like he was kind of thrown off by the fact that we knew this stuff. And then we asked him where, how could he have lost that much blood? And there was no ev- evidence of pericardial perfusion, which is kind of like where a lot of the experts went at first. Oh, blood mm-hmm. probably pulled around the heart. It didn't. There's actually a line in the notes, in the actual records that says there's no evidence of pericardial perfusion after he went into cardi- cardiac arrest. No answer for where the blood went. And we even asked them, do you think that the fact that this hemodialysis machine was going down and went down twice in the hours before he went into cardiac arrest, could that have contributed to the blood loss? And he didn't have an answer for us. He said, I'm going to have to look more into it. And that was it. That's all we got. Unbelievable. That so, Unbelievable. And that was a great, that was a, that was amazing um, uh, description uh, of, of what went on. Now, where are we now? Do we have time well, still to reach an attorney to have someone accept well, the case? I'd, I'd like to say out this. Of time? 
only because you know it this is wonderful and the, the investigative work that lucas did was quite amazing amazing quite amazing, amazing. and, and amazing. everything that he there was over 11,000 pages of this. Uh, and, uh, you know, I kept meeting him because, you know, I was going on tour and we we're doing rehearsals for certain tours in L.A. And I'd meet him and he'd come back with all this information. And other doctors had actually, uh, uh, you know, basically said he's absolutely right. And they've come up with even even more things because that Lucas and I wouldn't know. And Lucas wouldn't know. I mean, it was options they could have done after they nicked the coronary artery, which um, but now we're getting in the malpractice. Part, but I, I just want to say from from the compassion, the emotional side of it is that all this happened. OK, and I'm sitting there with these dead fingers and a, a group of 10 people come in that I can remember in the original hospital. I'm saying with Dr. Shaker surrounded by him and Rebecca came in with that. But Rebecca, as you see, can be soft spoken and mm -hmm. and and kind of reserve and be more understanding. And when they came in and they said, really sorry about the fact that you will not have the use of your fingers anymore in your life. She basically said to uh, doctor, the doctor, the head surgeon, she says, you know, you, you do surgery all day long. How would you like that if somebody just said, I'm sorry, this is what's mm -hmm. going to happen. So basically, all the lawyer stuff happened only because as soon as basically when we left Boston, it was like, hey, don't let the door uh, hit you in the butt when you leave. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no communication, nothing. And oh, no compassion about, well, here's one of the 10% of things that go wrong, that mm -hmm. things do happen. And then there were, you know, complications upon complication. Like the doctor told me on the phone, that head surgeon said, hey, we hit a, little hard, hit a lot of road bumps. You know, what do you want me to do? I go, yeah, you hit a sinkhole too at the end, you know? Mm -hmm. And then he goes, um, guess what? We're going to take care of it. I'm going to we're going to go to MIT and get you uber modern prosthetics. That's what I wanted. That's what I really wanted. Okay, mm -hmm. I was the unlucky one. This happened. Now I'm breathing. I'm here. I'm starting to feel better. But you don't want to talk to me at all. And you don't want to talk mm -hmm. about anything about on your grounds, on your property. This all happened. I walked mm -hmm. in there happy with fingers and toes and scratching mm -hmm. my, my, my hair and picking my nose and everything was happy. And now I can't do anything and anything constructive. And I just looking at these dead fingers, you promised, you then said that you would do show some kind of compassion. So what happened was, I don't think I want to see this happen to anybody else. Number one. Number mm -hmm. two, what about me? What about helping me out with carrying on with my life? My life is not over and my career is not over mm -hmm. by no means. And I'm not going to let that happen. And every, and that's what's driven me to keep going and keep going on, on this, this path, this journey, this journey with ups and downs. One day insurance, what they do is they actually, this is, a, and I'm going to go into this for a second because they're not going to give me any prosthetics. So all of a sudden, the right hand gets passed in December. Yes, you're going to give you a right hand, but they're going to give me the palm part and the fingers part because that's what's missing. But to make that work, there has to be a whole unit here that comes up to mm -hmm. here, weeds these muscles and tells it to work. And this is the cheaper one, the mechanical one, the electronic one. They don't want to spend that money for you. So they're mm -hmm. not approving anything from the wrist up to make all that work. Sure, you could just put that on. And then, they, and then the other hand needed some upgrades and they think like, I want nail polish. They go, that's all you want that for is cosmetic reasons. No, it makes the hand that's experimental work better. And Unbelievable. you approve the hand. You approve the hand. I have it. And now they made really, really modest costing upgrades. But they say it's for cosmetics. No, the cosmetic thing I would really like to have is my freaking fingers back. Give mm -hmm. me a break. Cosmetic mm -hmm. what? Prosthetics? Give me a break. It's bullshit. Excuse me.
No, Sorry, it's okay, so man. It's, it's we're okay. We're talking about the hematocrit level and everything else. Be honest with you. Hey, they could have picked that that number that Lucas is saying was low that I'm seeing my doctors now that are, are um, involved in reading this and all the doctors. They could have picked that as low. That would have been great. But guess what? It dropped down to nothing. It dropped mm -hmm. down to nothing. Explain mm -hmm. that. That's mm -hmm. what you need mm -hmm. to explain. If every other doctor that I've talked to has said it should have been a couple points higher so they had a little margin for, uh, for error. But no, 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 that's the number we keep it at, mm -hmm. right? But it went to nothing. Explain mm -hmm. that. You're telling mm -hmm. me somebody came in and stabbed me. It's in the report. Somebody came in and stabbed me. Mm -hmm. And then, boom, we wash our hands clean. Now I'm going to say this on your podcast. Everybody should read the article because I got a call from the Boston Globe. I didn't take part in that article, but I'm going to have him write about it. He has a doctor, Shushing, and it says, The Secret of Boston Doctors. This is a guy, they call him the Mudraker of Boston. He writes about everything in healthcare and, 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 and construction and all the corruption. But he talks about that whole hospital system and how corrupt it is when something happens wrong to somebody. When something happens wrong, they don't get anything. They don't get anything. They just gave back a mother whose child became, I'm saying, special needs. And she won one, um, I think, seven million, was it? And they gave it back. The mm -hmm. state made the hospital give it back because no, their charitable just, they know how to legally protect the hospital. And we know which hospital we're mm -hmm. talking about. The two mm -hmm. of them are now joined. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying to everybody, make sure you check when you go into a hospital, what the laws are there. Cause in Pennsylvania, I would have got, we wouldn't be, wouldn't be talking. I would have gotten hands. Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania is there's a no fall. It happened during our, on our grounds. It happened during us, you know, being in your chest. Guess what? We're going to help you out. It happens in New York that way. Doesn't mm -hmm. happen in Massachusetts. And there's people in Massachusetts. That's why I have lawyers that aren't really malpractice that are helping me out with this. They are so mm -hmm. upset that the near state and people globally come to Boston because of people like Dr. Lawrence Cohn that aren't alive anymore to get operated on. And all it is is corruption. All mm -hmm. they do is move those doctors out of those main hospitals to country hospitals. It's amazing reading mm -hmm. all this system, reading about that system. It's it's but well, honey, one 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 thing they might be really good at is saving your life from the mistakes that they made. They made Thank yeah. you. you know that's yeah. all they kept saying that's to us during that meeting. That's, that's what they kept saying to us. Mm -hmm. That's basically like it. Yeah. Yeah, you know? unbelievable. So, uh, uh, Rico, you mentioned uh, a lawyer. Do you guys have a lawyer at this time uh, that you're involved with, or are you seeking representation for this at this time? I have a Bible here. God forbid, I have this lawyer is great. But guess what? But it's because of my my entertainment business. I put all points alert out for <laughs> lawyers in Boston. This guy came back. First of all, the, the top malpractice lawyers contacted me, waited two and a half years, and then dropped me. Right. Because, oh, we can't, we can't do it. Uh, then the next one, four and a half months back and forth, spending so much money, dropped me. It had six weeks left. This guy who's a who's an workman's comp lawyer who has a lot of friends in malpractice. We just thought this was so disgusting and hearing about other cases like this, about people getting screwed over. Uh, just was so abhorrent. He has so much money invested in the case. He got down there to the court, to the court and got it in just in time. He got it. In, he got it right, right under the right. wire of, of statute of limitations. And right. now we're, I'm sitting there with him, but I am looking for a, a Boston lawyer. It has to be a Boston malpractice lawyer. And we do have some people interested in it because, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's a hard case because it's in a place where they 
definitely have the upper hand. It just yeah. is. Yeah. If you read that article by this guy, it's just amazing to hear what's happened to people that that's almost much more clear cut, but this is pretty clear cut. You yeah. Know? Because, uh, you know, the, the thing that kind of made it, I guess, a little bit hairy at first was, you know, complications during a surgery, they kind of waive all liability. But the thing is, is that the complications that really led to, you know, my father's, you know, loss of his fingers and toes wasn't due directly to the surgical complications. It was mm-hmm. due to the care that happened three weeks later. He we went into cardiac mm-hmm. arrest three weeks after the surgery. Mm-hmm. And there's three no explanation later. as to why. And there's no, nothing in the records. No doctors have given us any reasoning for why this could have, or even should have, or how it happened. So, um, you know, the, the fact that this happened, the fact that this directly led to, you know, the, the, um, the death of the tissue on his extremities and then having to kind of free pump him with vasopressors, that has nothing to do with the nick in the pulmonary artery that has to do with mm-hmm. the care three weeks later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So bordering on negligent if, if, or, or negligent in, in, in some ways. Yeah. Negligent, yeah. not bordering. Yeah. That's negligence. what they might say. Negligence. Sorry. Mm-hmm, negligence. Mm-hmm. We know it's well, negligence. A lot of other doctors know it's negligence too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, but um, it's, it's just, uh, it's their own, own little, and I have to say this mafia. And I've talked to other people in Massachusetts, <clears throat> but you can read this, this gentleman's articles. And I'm in touch with him now because the only way to, to get this to happen for me is to, is to get the word out, is to completely mm-hmm. get the word out. And for it to happen to everybody else, living in the Massachusetts area. So they see that the Massachusetts Board of Medicine, that's enough. They back up those doctors. They move them around. They hustle and bustle so that mm-hmm. there's no malpractice uh, cases that are really awarded. It's got to be, inc- it's got to be like, they almost have pictures of a doctor stabbing a, stabbing a child or something. It's mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. abhorrent. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. So I want to get the word out. I'm going to get the word out about how they told me to go to charity. They invited us up for a weekend and they just embarrassed us. And he whispered in my ear, that doctor, he whispered, they won't let me do anything. They won't let me do anything because he's the one that told me they're going to take care of things. That's where it really falls down. This mm-hmm. is, when mm-hmm. the, this happens, so this 10 to 14% of people just have to live the rest of their lives differently and not have any money. That, I am so blessed with the support I have of my family and the mm-hmm. support I have of people in my industry. And mm-hmm. I'm still working. So, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to let them win. There's no way they're not going to beat me down to to where I could be. And let's face it, there's a lot of other options you can get when you get this sad. And there's mm-hmm. moments of sadness mm-hmm. about this happening. You know, it's yeah. just it's just yeah. uncanny. You mentioned your family and uh, Rebecca and, and Lucas and, and of course Rico. Your spirit is is second to none. I mean, but your family is amazing, and the way you guys have banded together even more is just incredible. Um, the point of our podcast uh, is to get visibility for this. And you have my word that we will send this to anyone you want us to send it to, to get visibility for what's, what happened to you, this injustice that happened to you and your family. Um, to even speak about it today, I, I, I applaud you because I know you're revisiting it and you keep on revisiting it. And I really thank you for revisiting it again today and telling us your story. Um, 
I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss for words uh, after, after hearing this. And um, all I can tell you is you have our love, you have our support. Whoever listens to this podcast and sees it and, and listens to it, hopefully it'll touch them as well, where we can get the word out to get the, the injustice corrected. Show us your hands, Rico. Before we go, show us your hands, buddy. I should show you a little nubby, a little foot. Rebecca, what do you mean? Show them a foot? <laughs> you don't want them to see your foot. You don't no. know they were worse I, with those. You'll probably I follow over those the toenails. Chair. I miss those toes, those ugly toes. Miss them big time. Well, the doc, the, his surgeon that did his feet was very proud of the job he did. Yes. Because okay. yeah. he yeah. saved, you know, I mean, the reason why they left, you know, they leave your your hands like that for so long is the demarcation they have to make sure that that the that everything's finished like dying let's just say um so like the doctors just took what every little bit that they could to leave everything they could you know Mm -hmm. that they could leave Mm-hmm. And his his foot surgeon was just like so proud of the job he did. And he did a great job because Lucas can still walk, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and he can drive a car. His hand surgeon mm-hmm. was amazing. Also, we were blessed with that. At least the hand surgeon and his foot surgeon were just like brilliant doctors. So no, that was a blessing. You, your family is a family of class and integrity. And Rico, you mentioned something in closing that you're still working I can vouch that Rico is still working. He calls me every morning, at least three times a day, and yeah. tries to uh, <laughs> try to figure you. things I'm... out. <laughs> no, you never bother me. I love you. I wish you called me ten next? times. What a are day. we going to do next? Exactly. I love that. I love that. But the the podcast is our fighting spirit, and nothing defines the fighting spirit than this family. And um, I thank you for being with us today. I thank you for sharing this story and revisiting it, as I mentioned earlier. And you have my word that we will do anything in our power to help you. Thank you. My heart is connected to yours. We thank, you. thank you so much. You Always, brother. Lucas, God bless love you. Everyone. Rebecca, thank you. Love you. And, thank you. And Rico, yeah. uh, we'll, get, we'll get this done, man. I gave you my word that I will do everything in my power to help. And we will start on Monday. As long as you don't go out and play in the snow again, because you're supposed to do it on Friday. that's right (laughs) i love you thank you so much for for doing this tonight i really love you all thank you thank you anthony ciao bye baby ciao lucas take care of yourself bye babe bye bye son bye wifey bye Bye. see you soon be real soon (laughs) beautiful beautiful job guys thank you i i I feel like i'm part of your family and uh and again i i love rico now I love Lucas. Now I love you, Rebecca. So let's um, yeah. let's make this a mission. We know a lot of people. Let's make this a mission to get this wrong righted. All righty. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on another episode of Our Fighting Spirit. We'll see you again next time. And uh, keep fighting and keep winning. Thank you for listening. Please make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast player and leave us a review. 